Welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble, and thanks for joining us for this first episode of Season 3 already. I can't believe it. We've had a lot of fun in producing this podcast, and the reason for myself is we're discussing historical topics and locations in Northern Michigan that I find fascinating and have loved exploring and researching over the years. As soon as we wrapped last season, I took off with my family for a vacation and headed to the Keweenaw Peninsula. As we passed Lance, I began mapping out destinations and places of interest for my family and I to visit. If you've ever been to the Keweenaw in November, you know that's not exactly the peak of tourist season. So some of the places we wanted to search out either weren't open or not offering tours. And many of the natural attractions were being blasted by the gales in November. We had three feet of snow on our second day and intense windstorms on the coastline most of the time we were there. That's the Keweenaw. But we did find a ton of really cool places to explore and were able to even have a few private tours arranged for us after I mentioned this podcast. So now some of the tales we collected on our journey will become future episodes for our podcast, including this episode. Works out well. I get to do what I love the most, which is travel. And out of all the places I've been fortunate to visit around the world, northern Michigan, right here in my own backyard, still ranks among the best. Can I write out these vacations as uh, income taxes? Uh, right, Karen? Is that going to be legit? Karen is our engineer and producer, and I'd like to give her a special thanks today for all the great work she's done on this podcast the last two years. After you cross the bridge from Houghton into Hancock, heading north, you start to see the ruins of the Quincy Copper Mine. I've always been fascinated and wanted to take a tour of the mine, but again, because it was November, the scheduled tour dates were over for the season. I called the number anyways and left the message and promptly received a call back from a gentleman and he was gracious enough to arrange a tour for my family and I. He also reached out to a group of engineers that had been waiting a tour and they joined us on a cold snowy Sunday afternoon in mid-November. Now the thing is with the mine tour, once you get deep enough within the mine itself, it really doesn't matter what time of the year it is. The temperature stays about the same, about 43 degrees or so all year. So joining us today is Tom Wright, who manages the Quincy Mine. Tom is an amazing historian not just the copper mining at Quincy, but the whole region in general and geological history going back billions of years. Well, thanks for joining us today, Tom, and thanks for uh, making the tour possible for my family and I last November. Oh, my pleasure. What's going on in the Keweenaw today? It is 27 degrees. Our snow is rapidly melting. The ski season's going to come to an end in a couple of weeks, but I think everybody will be ready to get out on mountain bikes and fishing and boating and all that stuff. Well, this has been kind of a mild winter for us down here. Probably the same for you guys? Very mild. Uh, it's, it's, it's been low on the snow as well. So I know that the snowmobilers weren't real happy this year. Everybody struggled. I moved to northern Michigan because I love winter. So this has kind of been a little bit of a bummer. We had more snow when we were up to see you in November than we've had down here the rest of the year. Oh, that's awful. Had <laughs> that killer snowstorm up there. Yeah, the, we had the big one in December, the one that kind of gridlocked the whole nation. And then we didn't have any snow for almost a month. Well, um, that's us. If I recall, our January snow total here in Houghton County, I think it was, it's usually somewhere around 80 inches, and I believe it was around 17 this year. Whoa, way below. Yes. Well, how long have you uh, been associated with the Quincy Mine? I've been there uh, going on uh, a little more than 10 years now, since 2012. Nice, nice. And what is your official title job description? I think you're. I am the manager of the Quincy Mine Hoist Association. And and you do a lot of other stuff peripherally too, don't you? Uh certainly we all do. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, let's just jump back in time for just a second. Karen and I were just discussing uh, after the brief conflict known as the War of Toledo in 1835, Michigan gave up its claim to the 468 square miles of territory 
that included Toledo. Just a few shots being fired and no casualties, thank God. And in exchange, Michigan was approved for statehood and awarded 9,000 square miles approximately of some of the most valuable land in the United States. And mainly that was appraised because of the uh, natural resources included that what they thought was the endless supply of lumber, along with the unrivaled concentrations of pure, almost pure copper. Well, they really didn't know about the copper at that time. It was a good deal, right? Um, a lot of people questioned whether Michigan, Michigan got the raw end of that deal because they got all this, this wilderness up here that was not very well explored. Sure, they knew about the timber. They had some inkling about the copper, but that had yet to be proven. When was the Quincy Mine Company founded? Uh, Quincy started in 1846. The mining boom up here started roughly in the early 1840s, maybe even uh, reaching back a little bit before that. So, so that makes Quincy one of the older companies up here, starting in 1846. Literally hundreds of companies came and went. Mining is a tricky business even today. For every successful company such as Quincy or Calumet and Hecla, the big one up here, for every successful company, at least 100 mining companies failed. But we should actually go back a little bit before that. The mining actually started up here maybe as early as 7,500 years ago, the first people that were here. The, the copper was discovered. There were mining pits. So the mining actually preceded our modern historic era by some time. Yeah, I've, I've come across a lot of that. You know, for years, I've been fascinated by, by the history of the area up there and the, the ancient pits up there. And then there's right. even claims that, that pieces of, of flow copper, too big to have come from anywhere else in the world, have been found in places in, in Europe and even farther that they, they, they think could have only come from the Keweenaw. What are your thoughts on that? We hear quite a bit about that kind of stuff. I, I tend to be a little bit more cautious about some of those claims. We know that the, the Keweenaw copper was traded extensively through America, as far south as perhaps Alabama, out into the west, certainly the Illinois mound building culture. Keweenaw copper is definitely documented there. As far as it being in Europe, I'd probably have some reservations about the truth of that. Mm -hmm. This was the first successful in industrial-sized mining operation in the U.S., uh, the, the, the Quincy? It, it was. It was the first successful copper mine, certainly, with the cliff mine leading the way up there. But they really went from what we call artisanal mining, which is doing everything by hand, to modern mechanized mining techniques and practices and a lot of the equipment that was developed back then as well. Of course, it's advanced over the centuries or over time, but I could take a miner, I'd be confident a miner from 1900, take him down to the Eagle Mine in Marquette and he could go to town there. Now, this, this, is, again, this, this predates like the big rushes in California or the Klondike, right? Absolutely, it does. Absolutely, it does. Not by much. We beat the 49ers uh, and certainly all the madness of the Klondike gold rush in the 1890s. But similar to those, the, the copper boom up here did spark worldwide interest. These mines were known worldwide. We were looking for people, and word got out. So there was worldwide interest. Calumet, Michigan was not around the world at one point. Sure. And even today, if you read mining history books, there will be a mention of Keweenaw's Copper Mining District. Unfortunately, right about the time we were hitting our peak, the Western Mines, especially the Anaconda Mining Company, but the mining companies out West and the fabulous profits they made, not to mention the Montana Copper Wars, all of that very quickly overshadowed Michigan's Keweenaw. And we got kind of put 
put aside as a footnote in history, which is part of the importance of what we do up here to, to bring that history to light. Yeah, and history, that's, that's, that's the main emphasis on this, uh, this, this show. So and that was the thing, you know, when I go up in that area, I just, I just love, love the history of the QAnon, how far back it dates. How many mines did Quincy oversee at the peak? Quincy was, was kind of singular. The mines up here, unlike mines today, a mining company today may have mines all over the world. If you think about Rio Tinto or, or Lundine or some of the other mining, uh, Newcomb gold mining, they're worldwide, they're international. These mines weren't like that. Even the mighty Calumet and Hecla, uh, they worked up here, but that was about it. Quincy, like so many mines up here, you need an economy of scale. The successful ones, in many cases, subsumed or took over lesser ones. So Calumet and Hecla, that was two different companies, original Calumet Mining Company, the Hecla Mining Company, working the same load. A lot of people on the board of directors of these companies were common, so they merged their interests. And as time went by, they started taking over smaller companies that were struggling. And Quincy did the same to some degree. They took over the neighboring mining companies, the Powabic, the Franklin, the Boston, the Hancock Consolidated. But Quincy really worked a very small section of ground up here, about a mile or so underground. Calumet and Hecla, maybe two miles underground. And it was all that economy of scale that allowed these companies to be successful. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because there was other mining operations. There was a lot of gold mines going on up there, and it seems the, the profitability, from what I've read, just really came from the stock shares that they sold. The, the mines themselves weren't really profitable in the gold mining industries. That was, if you're familiar with, with Mark Twain's Roughing It, he has a great description of, of how people make money mining, <laughs> <laughs> which is generally they find a prospect, they sell that prospect to somebody else and makes money, and then someone develops that prospect and, and sells it to somebody else. And that was a, a large part of what was going on in, in, in Montana, too. Mm-hmm. Um, people realized there was money to be made, and the money often was in the exchange of stocks. What's most important to note about copper mining in Michigan is that the copper mines up here fueled our industrial revolution in the United States. Right. We, we were at that point where we were fairly, in the early 1800s, a fairly agrarian society. But as our society, as America industrialized, and especially toward the latter part of the century, as the nation electrified, there was a tremendous demand for copper. And the mines up here met that demand with our production. Copper for us at that period was a strategic metal. It still is in in, in many regards. It was a strategic metal. We needed copper sheathing for our warships to keep barnacles and borers off and holes of vessels. Copper for brass and for bronze, the standards in industry. Eventually telegraph lines, telephone lines, motors. So the copper boom up here fueled the nation's growth as an industrial power. And and how did the Quincy rate among the other mines up there as as far as in terms of uh, copper refined and and profitability? If it wouldn't have been for the the mighty Calumet and Hecla mine, Quincy would have been number one up here. Ultimately, if you look at the, the mining up here, carrying it through to 1996, when the White Pine Mine closed, Quincy ended up as roughly fourth overall, depending on what reports you're reading or how you're looking at the standards, which is no bad deal. Quincy produced in its 99-year history just under a billion pounds of copper. And, and that's something to note, too. This district from the 1840s through 1996 
produced over 14 billion pounds of copper. Now, if you take the value of that copper, it exceeds the combined value of the output of both the California and the Alaskan gold rushes. And, and I would submit the value isn't in the monetary amount. The value is what it did for our country. Right. Uh, and, that, and that's just something that can't be overlooked. Yeah, gold's primarily used. Well, it's used in industry too, but obviously it's, a, it's jewelry. You know, that's kind of the, and like you said, all the other sources for needs for, uh, for copper. That, uh, yeah, gold telephone lines uh, or gold <laughs> telephone wires or electrical wiring and gold. Sure, it's a great conductor, but I don't think it would stay around for very long. And, and we started our tour that day. It, it was the powerhouse, am I correct? Uh, that was the hoist house. The hoist house, that's right. Yeah, uh, that was the, the 1918 hoist house, which houses the largest steam hoist ever built. The Nordberg hoist that's up there is the largest steam hoist ever built. That gives you some idea of what's going on up here. Calumet and Hecla had wonderful machines too, but they never had a hoist as large as that. And so that is a remarkable legacy from our industrial heritage up here. I wish we had more like it, but it's an amazing machine. And even today, that machine, I was I was at the little, I was the Orphan Girl Mine in, in Butte, Montana a few years ago. And ran into an engineer there, and when 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 I told him where I was from, he said, "Ah, the Nordberg." <laughs> Everybody knows about that machine. Everybody in the mining world knows about that machine. Just an amazing, amazing piece of engineering. Yeah, it's overwhelming when you when you look at it too. And I mean, you told us how much that thing weighed. Yeah, the the, the whole machine comes in at one million seven hundred sixty five thousand pounds of iron and steel. And and what's to remember about that too? If people go online, look it up, look up pictures. There was no AutoCAD back there. There were no computers running simulations on it. It was just roomfuls of men sitting at drafting tables with slide rules and, and, and saying, how did we do it last time? And this broke. How do we make it better? So when you look at that and that piece of amazing technology, we'd be hard pressed, I think, to, to put something together like that from scratch today. Yeah, just, I mean, like you said, the the, the engineering behind it, and then you think of just physically moving objects that large and putting them together assembly is just overwhelming when you're standing there looking at the at the engine it is it is and and, and the, the biggest part of it the drum comes in at 516,000 pounds half a million pounds and, and for our engineers out there no i have no idea the torque to spin a half a million pound drum somebody can figure that out for me someday the, the machine generated about 2600 horsepower I know you can calculate torque ratings on that. It would pull a 15-ton skip out of the ground at 36 miles an hour, which was which was just a marvel back then. 10 tons of ore, 5 tons for an empty skip, 15 tons coming up at 36 miles an hour, which was just a marvel. And and that was the only machine like that. In 1910, the Superior engine up there in, in Calumet was the largest steam engine in the entire world. Think about that. In this supposed backwater, we had the largest steam engine in the world. I believe it was 6,100 horsepower. Just a power plant. There was a lot going up here at the turn of the 19th century. Now, in the early days, as you described to us, uh, men with a single candle stuck on their helmets jumped on a essentially like a moving ladder. It was about like what, like one foot by two foot that they a target they had to jump onto to get to work every morning. Uh, well, we should go back a little bit. In the early days, men climbed down into the mine, fifty-four degree angle. Test that out. Fifty-four degree angle on these ladders with nothing but a candle on their head. Later on, yes, the man engine introduced in eighteen sixty-five. 
And that was also the, uh, a good mark of a company's success and profitability. If they could put a man engine in, which saved them time and money, but if they could afford to do that, they were doing all right. And that was a big draw. But they might ride our man engine shaft bottomed out at 3,000 feet, more than a half a mile deep. Think about riding an escalator into the ground a half a mile which would be relatively safe compared to this contraption. Yeah, that didn't seem like any way to get to work uh, for me on a, on a early morning. Hey, it sure beats climbing a thousand feet of ladders, it, right? It does. It's a little spooky, man. I'm not the biggest guy in heights. Yes. Now, the hoist, that that was, that was progressed the other uh, way to get guys to work, too. Did you use that? That hoist took men down into the mine, too, right? The, the, the... Eventually, yes. 1895, they started putting what's called man cars on. It's, it's kind of like a bleacher on wheels, as I've heard it described. And again, there's all sorts of pictures of man cars underground because we're going down at a 54 degree angle it's going down on rails now uh, some of the mines up here had vertical shafts so it was more of an elevator like affair I and mean, the men would be literally crammed into that remember no OSHA no MSHA so you better keep your arms in tight or you're going to lose them on the way down if you're in a vertical shaft a lot of dangers in these mines up here yeah, absolutely. And, and you said that now when these men are going to work in the morning on the new the new shaft, what, what speed are they moving? They're only going down at 15 or 20 miles an hour. And I guess that was uh, an acceptable safety uh, to take them down. I, I don't know how anybody determined that number, but they determined that half the rated speed of the hoist was a good number to take men down at. And this is uh, in complete or nearly complete darkness, right? Yes. Uh, in later days, some of them did have lights um, on the back of them. I've seen pictures. I'm not sure how that worked because you'd have it was probably a carbide light, but they didn't have lights on them at Quincy. How long did it still take for them to uh, reach their destinations? Oh, they could reach 9,000 feet in 20 minutes. They could, they could go down to the very depths of the mine, a mile and three quarters in about 20 minutes. Yeah, and state that number again. Ultimately, the mine bottomed out at over 9,000 feet, correct? Quincy bottomed out at 9,260 feet. That's deep. Which is roughly, and that's on the angle. At one time, the Quincy mine was the deepest incline shaft in the entire world, contiguous Inclined shaft. Calumet and Hecla had a lot of shafts that bottomed out at 9,600 feet, a little bit deeper than ours, but they weren't contiguous. They were vertical haulage shafts with inclined subshafts underground. The Red Jacket mine up in Calumet was at one time the deepest vertical shaft, over a mile in depth, straight up and down, deepest vertical shaft in the world. Today, deep shafts. There are a lot of deep shafts in the world pushing thirteen or 14,000 feet, especially the, the gold mines in South Africa or some of the copper mines up in the Sudbury Complex in, in Canada. But for a mine to be at that depth in, in say, 1930 was just an incredible feat of, of engineering, the labor that went into it, the dangers that were involved. It was quite a feat. Tom, uh, when we started out in the hoist house, uh, you questioned us about the interior, the white marble. That was imported from Italy, I believe. Not white marble, it was white tile. White tile. Subway tile or sanitary tile. And that, that was imported? Uh, uh, yes, it was. At least to our knowledge, we're trying to do some research. Quincy was a very parsimonious company. And even today, mining, mining companies are. If you're going to make money, you watch every penny. And, and Quincy indeed did. So we kind of questioned the story that this, this subway tile or, or uh, white tile was imported from Italy. That just doesn't make sense. But what does make sense is, is that structure, the 1918 hoist house, was one of the first structures in America built out of reinforced concrete. 
Quincy had several interests in doing that. One of them was wooden structures are notoriously problematic when it comes to flames. And they did not want to have a hoist house burn down and ruin the, the this this machine that they were spending a lot of money on, roughly $371,000 from the machine in the building. So Quincy constructed this building out of concrete as fire protection, but also as a showcase. They could have put up a steel superstructure and just clad it with sheet metal, like most of the, the mining buildings and certainly the shaft houses up here. But they built this thing to make a statement. It's opulent. For, for an industrial building, it had uh, terracotta tile, beautiful imperial green terracotta tile on the roof. It was wired. It had electricity when it went up. It had bathrooms. This thing was state-of-the-art, more than state-of-the-art. It was a statement, and the statement was, we have wealth, we have money. The Quincy Mine is a company you want to invest in. It's all about that kind of corporate statement. Yep, that's the feeling you get when you're inside that building for sure. Yes, the building was spotless, absolutely spotless. People, even at that time, people came from around the world, not necessarily tourists as we have today, perhaps, but certainly engineers and mining people came from around the world to come up to this district and see how it was being done, see how the machines were being used, how they were being made, and take it back to wherever they might want to go. Now, I got a taste for a beer when I was up there, and I think it's manufactured by the Keweenaw Brewing Company called Level 94. I'm not familiar with that one. Usually the Widowmaker is their popular one. Uh, That and Pickaxe Blonde, I believe. So I'm not familiar with that one. We were down 96 levels. 96. That's the Excuse me, 92. 92. 92. 92 92 levels. Uh, Level 92, I'm telling you what, it's the tastiest one out of all of them. And that kind of uh, references the uh, the levels of the the Quincy Mine. And uh, no pun intended here, but we will go for a snare drum. I think we just scratched the... The surface uh, of, of this uh, this fascinating mine up in up in yes. Uh, can we can we bring you back on for another segment? Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today and for the first segment of season three of Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. Please join us next time as we continue our discussion with Tom Wright, manager of the historic Keweenaw Peninsula's Quincy Mine.